Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um, well, thanks for sharing this idea of creating Wonky Folk. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's something you and I have been batting around here for, I don't know, several months here. And just this idea that um, if there's anything that I crave in the education space right now, it's just some sense of coherence. There's just so many things that are happening uh, at, at, at such a pace. Um, and there's just so much variety at a national level. And uh, certainly one thing I've just valued in you, Andy, is uh, your work at Bellwether is just being able to bring coherence also with a perspective that's just nationwide. And so, hey, maybe we end up talking amongst ourselves and we, we think that there's some value that we're adding for folks. Um, but, you know, I just appreciate you willing to take a try with it. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I mean, look, I think we, we both, I mean, everybody can agree, like the world needs, you know, more middle-aged guys with podcasts. Like there's obviously <laughs> a, huge, a huge market gap there. And so I think we're gonna try to, gonna try to fill it. Um, no, you're one of those people when I get on a call with you about something, like you end up having these conversations about like, what's going on in the sector, what's going on in general, before you get to whatever the point of the call is. And you're always like, that conversation, like that might make an interesting podcast. So it's good to actually potentially potentially try that out. Although I, unfortunately, I bet it'll be more stilted when we do it now than, than when you're just like getting on a Zoom uh, to kick something around. Well, we'll hope that uh, we keep it fresh and and, um, and who knows, we may also invite some people down the road uh, to, to broaden out the discussion. And, yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Well, you know, and I also just feel like this nexus of, look, I overweight on charters in all sorts of ways, right? And I think that's a good place for us to be generally. But, you know, your knowledge on, on the wonk side, you know, on the policy side, K-12, um, you know, that's where, you know, I think if we really can focus our, our energy here, I think there actually is value for two middle-aged white guys to offer here. Yeah, definitely. I thought you were just going to say, like, coming out of the Coming out of the winter, I'm always a little overweight. Just period. I thought you were, <laughs> I thought you were going to go there right out right out of the gate. Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I've, and charters are a big part, and I think they're they're illustrative of a lot of what's going on. But like, there are bigger things in the sector. And obviously, this week, like a big one that's on everybody's mind um, is just this horrific shooting last week in Nashville at the Covenant School. Yeah, you know, I think. Um... These shootings have become so frequent that, you know, you start a, a podcast like this, it's almost, you know, it's almost off the news cycle already, and we're just grown so immune to it. But there are things that come up about this particular shooting that um, I just um, find just, just again, Ill illustrative of, of the problems that we face. And I mean, here it is, it's a private school, right? Um, and uh, and and you know the the the, the community that was involved or that was affected you know all different and new the political responses that we're seeing from policymakers new but all sadly you know not very to the point um, but I I just think that these these incidents you know these these incidents of of tragedy like this I just think they contribute to a, a, a lack of trust that so many parents have in the public education system um, or in public private education, where, wherever you wanna you know, focus at this point. Um, and while I think, you know, like your last, um, your last blog entry talks about the relative safety of kids in schools versus all these other settings, but the broader narrative is kids may not be safe at school. And if there's anything that parents, you know, gravitate to, it's that desire to keep their kids safe. 
And so I see this potentially contributing to kid, parents even pulling their kids back even more and trying to find other settings within to educate their kids where they feel like they're safe. Yeah, but I mean, as we've seen over the last, you know, couple of years, these can happen at any kind of a school. We, they, they, they happen at traditional public schools, they happen at charter schools, and they can happen at, at private schools. I mean, actually, they're really rare. Like, I think we, we, are, we are sort of soaked. You have to hold sort of a couple of things in your, in your head at the same time. You know, one, just every one of these is awful and just unique in its awfulness. And that they're also pretty rare. I mean, I think most people are surprised when you ask, you know, how many people have been killed in mass shootings at school since, say, Columbine. You get some really astronomical numbers, and it's actually, you know, fewer than 200, um, which is 200 too many, obviously. And again, everyone is uniquely horrible, but they're not, they're, not, they're not as ubiquitous as you would know if you spend a lot of time, if you would think you spend a lot of time online. Meanwhile, like youth violence, particularly like out of school and communities, um, is an enormous problem, has been for a while. And, and to sort of, to your point, things that don't get headlines, it doesn't necessarily get a whole lot of, lot of headlines. And it's just sort of a grinding and sort of staggering toll. Um, and so I think we, we struggle to sort of talk about these things. And then when something like Nashville happens with some of the circumstances around it, everything kind of grinds to a halt. And what's, I think, really troubling about that is, you know, these shootings in general, not every one, but in general, they're preventable. Four out of five school shooters say what they're going to do ahead of time. We don't have all the details on Nashville, but this person, their parents were, you know, apparently concerned enough about them to want to intervene around their access to firearms and so forth. And 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 so I think what's getting lost in a lot of the the, the rhetoric and the concern and the talk about hardening the target and all this is like, if four out of five young people who do something like this tell you that they're going to do it ahead of time, like, why aren't we uh, heading that off more upstream? To your point on trust, also, what's going on with trust in the school with students where they can't engage adults around these things? There, there's there's so much leakage yeah. ahead of time, and yet we're still not um, uh, heading them off. And I think we need to have a, a hard conversation about school culture and and, and, and why that is. Well, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of forces at play right now that are keeping candor and agency um, be, uh, in, out of schools. And so we have a lot of adults and a lot of kids that can't talk about the thing. Uh, and when you can't talk about the thing, well, you, of course, you're not going to be able to talk about these kinds of things. But uh, yeah. my wife was my wife's a clinical psychologist. She was just uh, forwarding me some stories from a, from a, from just social media about um, parents who are suing school districts right now over bullying and um, and then suicides that have been happening associated with those. And, you know, I think these these shootings, they tend to crowd out, you know, the the um, uh, attention on many of these yeah. other things. And so, um, of course, I mean, the problem of gun violence in schools has to be taken on for sure. Um, but also these other issues can't be crowded out from our attention such that we can like stay focused on what's really going on with our adolescent kids right now, because the psychological crisis that we have in this generation is unlike anything we've seen uh, previously. And they're related though, right? Like they, a few years ago, the Secret Service did analysis on um, school shootings. And one of the things they talked about was this leakage and this upstream, uh, you know, kids basically saying in, in many cases explicitly what they were going to do or having a lot of, you know, in the case of Parkland, the shooter said explicitly what they were going to do when they got the chance or lots of like signs and indications that common sense would tell you something's going on. Um, but a common factor the Secret Service uh, found was was bullying and that that kid, the people involved in these uh, 
shootings, they were the victims of um, of different kinds of bullying. And they actually called pretty explicitly for really vigorous anti-bullying programs, what you would call, you know, SEL programs, stuff like that. And I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, SEL is getting sort of sucked into this, you know, ongoing culture war vortex we have. And here you've got the Secret Service, which I don't know that like anybody's going to describe the Secret Service like a hotbed of leftism. And they're calling for like, you have to do this, you have to create that culture. Because if kids don't have a trusting environment in school, they don't have adults, they're going to trust, they're not going to go to them and say, hey, here are these things we're seeing that are that are worrisome. Um, and they're not going to, you know, you're just not going to have that kind of that kind of information flow. Uh, it comes back to, you know, one of the reasons I know you got active in the in the in the charter world, one of the things that attracted me to charters is just where place we can create a kind of intentional community where kids and adults yeah. just interact in different ways than, than is sometimes the norm in schools. I think kids are really tuned into whether or not there is authenticity and agency in their environment. And if they sense for whatever reason that the adults in that in that space can't say what they want to say, or it's all canned, or it's just completely and utterly predictable, they just disengage. And the only place the conversations will be happening is in the hallways or outside of school um, and, or in social media, where, of course, you know, a lot of these bullying problems got get to be only worse. Yeah, so I, you know, for me, I just feel like the problem of lack of agency in our public schools is just much more profound than we than we recognize. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that I think I think that's um, right. So one of the things I know we wanted to talk about today, speaking of um, uh, challenging public schools, is you know what's happening in a couple of the cities, and you're just down the road from Los Angeles, which was in the news quite a bit with that strike. Yeah, you know, I think that um, this this strike situation in Los Angeles and the problems that we see in so many urban schools doesn't get enough attention. And perhaps, you know, my writing at, at Charter Folk just beats on it till people are just, <laughs> you know, re ready to cry mercy. But I actually think no matter how much I can focus on it, there's still way more problems that are there than, uh, than, we're, than we're paying attention to. And, and we're seeing an aspect of, you know, the urban education world only double down a path that we know is going to result in further demise. And, um, you know, that's certainly what I see uh, coming out of the Los Angeles situation. Um, I think things hang in the balance right now in Chicago. We are recording this on a Monday. You know, the election results will be on Tuesday and we'll release this on Wednesday. But, you know, um, Chicago and Los Angeles have probably been the two hotbeds of teacher unions taking on new levels of aggressiveness and new levels of, of political um, engagement. That's translated into them having virtual complete control of the Los Angeles Unified School District right now. And we'll see what happens, you know, in Chicago. But should it go in the direction of, of the Chicago Teacher Union having more um, control in Chicago, I don't see that doing anything other than speeding the demise of, of the district. Do you, I mean, do you see it differently here? What what nuance can you offer as it relates to the challenges we have in urban education right now? Oh man, I mean, it's hard to know where to start. And those two cities are, you know, there's some there's some commonality and some distinct issues. One of the commonalities is obviously just unsustainable fiscal structures. Um, I'm sort of struck. We keep having these conversations and, and, and these entities, we've got to figure out what we do to get them on a sound financial footing, whether it's, it's you know, and it come, came up in the Chicago race, um, some of the issues around pension, retirement financing in LA, um, you look at, I mean, the school district's own numbers on the percent of money from the retirement that they're paying into retirement for people who aren't even working in the system 
um, the percentage of classroom dollars that are now going to that. It's, it's, it's staggering. And we're not sort of having any kind of an honest conversation about that. So whatever the latest thing is, the strike du jour and the sort of constant negotiation that the teachers unions have with the districts, it just plays out in these in these different ways. I was sort of struck that in the wake of the pandemic, all the avowed concern about learning loss and everybody saying they're going to get serious, that in L.A. you had this strike and there was just very little attention to like kids need to be in school right now more than totally. anything else. Yeah. And we're just going to have a, another school holiday essentially for politics. And there was just like very little outrage, very little. It was just sort of almost seemed like it's business as usual, which was 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 striking to me, given the context and given the stakes right now. Yeah, what was shocking to me was that, I mean, there, um, Jackie Goldberg was, and the, and the superintendent was there saying, there's no need for a strike. We're willing to give you guys absolutely everything, you know, essentially, uh, and yet they wanted to strike anyway. And then at the end of the strike, when they talk about what the deal was, it, it was essentially the same as they had been talking about for weeks. So yeah. what really was the motivation here? And did you really have to have another three days of, of, of student, you know, learning loss in order to make that point? That's a tactic. And I think that's not always appreciated. Like the teachers unions, that that having the strike, getting people out there, getting people riled up, it's a membership tactic. It reminds the members why they're there, all this stuff. And they will strike even when it's not, when, when you could actually get to a deal without a strike. We saw that in LA. That was really the, the sort of, Thing that really I think changed with teacher strikes in general. I think you have to uh, go back to Karen Lewis and what she did in Chicago, yeah. um, in, in back in 2012, I think it was, um, where you know at that point, you know the unions were, you know, Randy Weingarten was talking much more about reform than she talks about now, and you know yeah. was saying tenure shouldn't be a job for life, and we need to like reform teacher evaluation, you know, much of stuff that now would be you know considered heretical. But she was like going to the press club once a year to talk about all these things. And in Chicago, Karen Lewis was like, you know, no, the hell with that. Like, we're going to fight on this. We're not going to get on this train. Um, we think there's another strategy we can fight. And like, essentially, exactly what you're talking about. The ultimate deal was pretty much the contours of the deal that was on the table. But they were pretty explicit. They needed to be able to have a strike. It was politically important. Um, and they did. Uh, yeah. Um, and they and any senior people in the union were relatively like open about like that that was what was going on. Um, and you know, here, here, here we are, this keeps, this keeps playing out. And the interesting thing about Chicago is it's such a stark choice. You've got Paul Valley and you can tell the director, we can talk about him and, and what he's done. And then Brandon Johnson and like, it, it's two very different choices facing Chicago voters. And it can be no illusion about which way things will go, depending how that race turns out tomorrow. Yeah. The thing that I, I just think that, um, we in the charter world in particular need to spend more time thinking about what is our, our, our agenda? What is our North Star as it relates to the evolution of these large urban school districts? I think for a long time, we just basically stayed under the radar screen. Hey, you know, that's not our job. We don't have to worry about what this thing evolves into. Let's just keep growing our schools and it'll work itself out on the other end. Well, now we're at that other end and, you know, um, and charter schools disproportionately have charged into large urban school districts to try and serve as many kids better than 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 they've been served in the past. Um, and now we've got just massive numbers of people leaving, you know, major urban areas. Um, and so our schools are there. They're fighting for enrollment, right? In Los Angeles, it's interesting. Basically, Los charter school enrollment has stayed flat for the last five years. 
around 110, 115,000 kids. But in terms of percentage of the of, of Los Angeles that is served by the by the charter school sector, it's grown from 16% to 21% right. just because we've late, stayed flat. Okay, well, what is the future? What's really gonna ha happen here? I don't think the charter school world can stay in a keep our head low mode anymore. No, we have to say, we actually think this is the future that all of public education needs to move into. And this is the role that we think charter schools can play in helping us get to that better place. Yeah, and, and I think the charter community has a decision to make about sort of how it wants to play its politics. Because one of the interesting things um, uh, about Chicago is there's definitely a, a race element to the race, to the to the political yeah. race, there's a racial element to it. And you're seeing that and civil rights leaders are, are, are talking about that. Um, but you've got some young progressives in the city, some reformers who are African-American coming down for Vallis in part over the school issues and the reform issues. I mean, again, I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow uh, at the ballot box. That, that's not a that's not a prediction. It's just you're seeing but you're seeing some of that. And I think that does portend there is a, there, there is this idea of how do you create sort of a, a multiracial reform politics that would include charter schools and used to include charter schools. And then you've got this countervailing pressure, which is the broader pressure in the country with the culture wars and everything where the parties just cleaving apart and charters feel like, well, we're going to go, you know, th their heart is with the Democrats, um, even though their political support is increasingly more with the Republicans. And you're seeing that tension. Um, and that could play out in some that could play out in some really some really dangerous ways for charters, particularly if you decide these other issues that are sort of adjacent and tangential around educating kids become the thing that you're going to put um, that you're going to put front and center. So I think it's actually a pretty a pretty fraught time uh, for charters. I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I think that the rationale be, behind the creation of charter folk was the idea that, you know, our charter people, you know, believing that they're a part of something bigger than themselves and willing to do more than they than is typically expected, as has been our history, you know, will continue to happen. Well, you know, in our urban settings, when our charter folk are hearing all of these things about how we're on the wrong side of history and we're associated with all these whatever right-wing interests or whatever it is, our own base can become wobbly. Our own base can feel like we're on the wrong side of history. The only way, in my opinion, that we can like communicate to them and to our other supporters and others that um, actually our, our, our values align with theirs is to come out and be more vocal about the way our school systems are set up, our redlining attendance boundaries, you know, our selective admissions that we know screen out kids by race, our funding um, systems that suck money away from high needs kids to, to subsidize you know, more affluent families' educations, um, allowing schools to be completely and utterly unaccountable so that the kids that you know, are most vulnerable suffer most, these are things that are counter to our values. And the way that charter schools are set up, you know, we are set up to operate schools in a completely different way. And we're going to advocate not only for our students to be served in that way, but all students to be served in that way. In that moment, I think, you know, the progressives who, who you know, have thus far heard silence from the charter school world will need to, like, step back and say, wait a second, what do I think about these things? Um, yeah, I uh, think and, so. And I think so. I mean, you're look, you're an optimist. This is your I think what's happening now that's very striking to me is is, is two sort of uh, related but somewhat discordant trends. One is 
among um, parents, you're seeing in the data, parents are more willing than ever to vote across party lines, move across party yeah. lines. Um, at coming out of the pandemic, they're frustrated. They, the old alignments don't make sense to them, and they, and they they want uh, results for the kids. And so it, the parental vote is up for grabs. It's much more it's much more fluid right now. Um, and then at the same time, among elites, you're seeing people are sort of chucking all their prior education commitments out the window in the interest of partisanship because things are becoming so hardened. And so you've got Democrats who used to support charters who are now like, yeah, you know. Like that's two parts of an issue. They, they've gone quiet. And like those two trends, watching them play out, I think um, uh, uh, there's both an opportunity there for charters, but also just enormous, enormous um, uh, political political risk. Yeah. And it, the disconnect between the public positioning and what the what the polling data shows, I mean, it was oh, just yeah. striking in 2019, you know, when, when UTLA had their last strike. I mean, every every left-leaning person in Los Angeles, every Democratic policymaker wanted to virtue project, we are with the teachers, we're with UTLA, we support this strike, right? And then UTLA thinks, okay, let's capitalize upon that by getting this parcel tax approved that will fund you know, teachers being paid at higher levels. Didn't even come close to passing, right, right. not even close. Right. Well, yeah, it gives the lie to this whole idea of like standpoint epistemology and that we're going to listen to people and do what they want because the support for charters, I mean, you know, strong majority support in the African-American community, strong majority support uh, in the Hispanic community. I mean, there's there's the idea that like charters are some sort of like unpopular thing or political jump ball. The only people who really aren't there on charters politically are white progressives. Right. But white progressives and the teachers unions, that's a pretty powerful coalition inside the Democratic Party. And it's not an insignificant political coalition in general. And so sort of uh, here we are. But I do think charters are one of those, you know, they sort of they, they pull back the, you know, they, they pull back the veneer on some of this stuff. And you can sort of see where the where the more raw political power uh, around some of these issues lies. Let me ask you something on white progressives, Andy, because my sense is that their opposition to charters may be fragile because um, it can be shown that most of these white liberals have got themselves into very favorable public education situations that they now structurally deny others. But they're not being, it's not being shown to them or they're not being held accountable for the fact that they are reserving this special benefit for them. And if they were forced to encounter, you know, to, to, to confront their own uh, uh, hypocrisy on this issue, I don't see how they stay in their current mindset unless they're willing to go to, okay, I actually oppose charters, not for these great progressive values, but for, for naked self-interest. I just, I'm not sure that the, the white progressives can actually pivot to naked self-interest as their justification for charters go, uh, opposition going forward. I don't know. I mean, look, the history of ed reform uh, in this country, you know, going back decades, one way to look at it is it's a history of sort of people with means evading whatever sort of reform strategies put in place, whether it's busing or, or, or choice or anything else more recently to figure out how to make the, the system work, work for them. I mean, I guess I do think there's something to like charters made a strategic error by focusing overwhelmingly, obviously the highest need is in urban communities and then rural yeah. communities, but focusing overwhelmingly on urban communities without having something there politically for the suburbs in a country where the politics are pretty suburban 
driven. And so you, you, you but not building that coalition and so forth. I think they left an exposed flank that is is causing a lot of a lot of trouble now. And so we should think about what does sort of yeah. a middle class chartering strategy look like. And I think that's look, people want customization, they want different kinds of schools, they want Montessori. And, and I, I think there's a lot of political opportunities to to make sort of short public school choice choice in the public system much more robust and attractive. But the second part of it is that that is also, I think, in some ways self-inflicted for to, for your strategies. I understand what you just laid out to work. People have to be kind of willing to 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 take some hits, be a little bit contentious, point out this that this hypocrisy and all the rest. And I think one of the things that really happened over the last decade, and you really have to give her credit for it, is Randy Weingarten kind of convinced a lot of reformers that they were the problem, that they were too acrimonious, they were too divisive, they weren't consensus oriented enough, and so forth. And that they and, and it was it was, you know, you heard like lots of the rhetoric. We have to collaborate and all this. And why do you have to be in, you know, a lot of reformers would be like, oh, yeah, why are we so, you know, why are we so contentious to the point where like Michelle Ree would run a commercial pointing out that like a lot of our schools like, you know, huge achievement gaps. They don't stack up well internationally. And everybody was like, oh, my God, that's so mean. Take down the ad. And, and funders got nervous about it. Yeah. Like. Your strategy, if we do want to point out that, yeah, of course, like everyone's kind of implicated. We, we redline education opportunity in this country by where you live. Darrell, our colleague Darrell Bradford's, I think, probably one of the most articulate people um, about this. But there's other folks. Tim DeRoche has a new organization. We do work on this at Bellwether. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, that like, you know, if you you have to actually be willing to take some hits and, and, and point that out and be like a little bit contentious, not not just for the sheer hell of this isn't culture war stuff where it's just like for the sheer hell of spinning people up, but just you have to be willing to say some controversial things and make people uncomfortable. Um, and I just don't know if the appetite is the, is there for yeah. that right now. Or if the courage is there. Yeah. I mean, this is where my MFA playwriting comes back in. You know, Aristotle knew all the way, all the way back, you know, then, right? What's the making of drama? Conflict. Um, you And you choose your conflict. And from that, you know, you can draw, drive a narrative. But this is your why we get along, Jed. When people come into the sector, they're like, they want to work in education. They're like, what should they read? And like, should I read like Dewey or E.D. Hirsch or whatever? I'm like, start with Aristotle. Like, this is more, <laughs> yeah, understand, understand, understand the nature of power in politics. And like a lot of what goes on in the sector will make more sense to you. But see, I ultimately think, you know, our movement will be defined by what we advocate for. And oh. I think that when we advocate for dumb things, that it's easy for somebody like Weingarten to say, you've been too extreme, you haven't been thoughtful, you don't have this all the way thought through, um, or you're just simply cheaply um, bashing people, you know, without a real theory, you know, we leave ourselves exposed. So I don't by any means say, oh, let's go out and just willy nilly start like taking yeah. a meat ax to red lines. But I do believe that there are ways for you, us to like thoughtfully start to erase them Absolutely. such that the question is asked. We're not talking about huge numbers, we're just saying, Every school district in America should have to reserve 5% of its seats for people that come from outside the school district so that we can start to have more choice, right? right. And and see what people, you know, or how they start to on, respond at that point. Yeah, little things on zoning. There's a lot of stuff you could do. I think choice is a piece of the solution set, but it's not the whole solution set. There's the, you, yeah, your idea. There's stuff you can do on zoning. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I actually think that's how you... It's, it's as if like, if you think about it, like if you, if you walk from, you know, you're in Los Angeles and I'm in Virginia or, you know, if, if, if you walk, you're in California, sorry, you're not in Los Angeles. We were just talking about LA, but you're in California, Northern California. And um, uh, I'm in Virginia. And if like we walk to each other and our compass is off, you know, 
a little bit. We're not going to notice. You're not going to notice that when you're in Nevada. And I'm not going to notice that when I'm in West Virginia and Ohio. But when we're trying to get where we're going, we'll suddenly realize I won't get to your house. I'll end up in Portland or, or down in L.A. Right. And that that's the Absolutely. way we have to think about how do you how do you start to change the system? You know, some of this is like the Cass Sunstein ideas about nudge and so forth. How do you change the system? So in 25 years, people are like, oh, wow, that's totally different. But they didn't see it. It wasn't. Um, and you're right. I do think we have people who, uh, and this is, I think, on, on both sides, who just want to be contentious. There's people who just want to yeah. sue school, you know, sue, you know, school districts and all this and lawsuits that aren't going to actually get anywhere, given given how the law works here. And there's, you know, people just want to come in and try to blow things up. And it, it, it's it conflict for conflict's sake is not productive, but. There will be some friction if there's going to be, you know, progress. That's a, you know, pretty well established, you know, principle as well. For sure. Well, yeah. we talked about keeping this to around a half hour, so we're getting close. I wanted to just ask you one last question. What What are you making about? And this could be another hour long conversation, but just you know, let's spend a couple minutes ruminating on this. Um, what are you making of Chat GPT and its implications for for education? Uh, is it is it being overhyped? Is it being underhyped? Is it uh, just a? Is are we in a moment where we just don't know? Um, I just love to hear your thoughts about this because I'm just I, my daughter just yeah. used ChatGPT GPT to help her on her first you know uh, essay. It's interesting, you know, she's writing about ALS and ALS is at the origins of Charter Folk too. My dear friend Brian Bennett, he passed yeah. away, and ALS really matters, you know, in our family's life. And now Tess is writing me from college. Chat GPT has helped me understand ALS at whole other levels of, of you know, understanding. But that's just one example. You know, how are you thinking about it as it relates to K twelve stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, Jed, I'm far from an expert on this, so I'm still learning. I list like people like John Bailey who are doing a lot of work on this. There's others. So I'm, I'm, uh, my sense is, is it overhyped or underhyped? Like, yes, both. Right? <laughs> um, like I can see, I mean, you know, every time there's a new technology around learning, people freak out. I mean, paper was controversial at one point. They, you know, they tried to license printing presses. So when something like this comes along, everyone's like, oh my God, we've got to like ban it and restrict it and so forth. That's like a, that's like a, you know, old human reaction to new knowledge technologies. Um, I mean, you even saw that a little bit with like in the early days of like email and the internet, there was some of that. And so like that sort of reaction is, is is both understandable, time honored, and and probably overstated. Um, on the other hand, look, this will change teachers' jobs and so forth. I worry it gives. You're starting to hear already again. Why are we teaching content and you know mere facts when kids are going to have ChatGPT, which I think is a huge misreading of how we learn and what you need to know to be able to understand the world and, and make sense of it. So like the excesses on, on, on all sides are sort of apparent. Um, I think some of it's very exciting. Uh, and one thing I'm intrigued by, you look at some of the stuff it can do and I screw around with it like everybody else does. Like everybody thought like automation and all this, they were like, oh man, you know, sucks if you're a cashier or a truck driver. Turns out, like, probably if you write, like, entry-level ad copy, you work for one of these, you know, websites that's basically a click farm and building listicles and this kind of stuff. Or maybe, and this is, like, hits close to home, maybe you're a blogger like me. Um, like, it, it uh, um, uh, th th this thing can can do some of the things that you do. Uh, and that's, I think, interesting and, and maybe will occasion a slightly different and less sort of class-based conversation about automation and 
new technology and so forth. And my last thought is just the speed of it. I remember a few years ago, I, I was looking at some of this and messing around with it and it was really bad, right? It just was not yeah. ready for prime time. And now like in a relatively short period of time. So I don't know. And then of course, look, I've seen all the same movies you have, like you have, like, so I worry, like, you know, are they gonna, you know, the robot's gonna kill us all, um, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it's real. I, I, I have, I have lots of thoughts, but no, no real answers. It's really, it's really interesting. What's your, what's your take? I mean, so obviously, your daughter's now cheating in college. I appreciate. It. <laughs> um, what's your, well, what's your take? Uh, so I think you know I, I patterned charter folk after Stratechery, you know, or Stratechery by Ben Thompson. Yeah. Um, and I've just been all, in, so impressed by him over the last five years of reading his stuff. Um, and he's just always so smart and he's always so measured. And then he had a chance to see ChatGPT and he just, he just went, you know, um, just, just over the moon about what this meant. He had never had an experience interacting with uh, technology in that way. And he wrote that and that then led the New York Times and to BBC and all sorts of others quoting him and interviewing him. What is so new about this? Um, I, I tend to think that, other, that since, you know, COVID and, and racial reckoning with, with George Floyd, this is probably the most important thing that has happened in the world. Um, and when we look back on, you know, something that happened, you know, during this decade. And I also think it's happening at the same moment that trust in education is evaporating and people want to be able to do different things, but they don't feel equipped to do it, you know, themselves or in small groups or whatever. And I just think this chat GPT thing is going to give people the confidence that they don't have to have any more trust in any other schools, you know, than is absolutely necessary. And so if there's anything I think this is going to do, it's going to accelerate uh, the forming of, of, new, uh, of new educational models and, uh, and ones that ultimately are going to challenge uh, our public education system uh, much more so than it will empower it. All right. Well, I mean, that's a bold prediction. I'll be interested. We can we can revisit this. Um, I'm not going to be in the prediction business, but by the time this does come out and, and this will be our first one, we'll see what people think. We will. I'll make it. We will know at least the answers to whether or not the Chicago cops can all put their Let's Go Brandon stickers back on their cars or not. <laughs> um, uh, so we will uh, we, we will pick it up with uh, with that and some other stuff uh, very soon. See you in a couple weeks. See ya. OK, see you.